The following content is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Will Harris, and David Sierra. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young, and we got a humdinger of an episode here for you. An interview about the language that we publicly use to talk about illness. Politicians, public health officials, it's going to be well worth your time, specifically as you are looking to understand how others in charge understand where we are with this illness? Trust me, you're going to want to stay for that. Also, I mean, the story that was really made for politics, politics, politics. A mistress to a sitting congressman. A guy who is in Congress right now and is in fact running for re-election currently His mistress reveals all during her own narrative memoir podcast. She didn't give an interview. She did it her damn self. We will tell you all of that story. But first, we talk about one of the emerging issues of this 2020 race. China. You haven't seen the world until you've seen China. China, 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 China. Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February. You go over to China, 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 I love them. China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. I complimented him on uh, on dealing with China. China, China, because China, 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 China. And we're going to hold China accountable. And this is the time. We have got to change our relationship with China. It is now or never. It's not an overstatement to say the future of the world hangs in the balance right now. China! Since January of this year, the percentage of U.S. voters who say China is an enemy the United States has risen 11 points to 31% total. The percentage of voters who say China is either an ally or a friend has fallen 9 points to 23% total. In an election, like all elections, that's going to rely on independent voters, people that aren't total partisans, the hunt for the animating issues that get them to the polls or sway you one way or another is extraordinarily important. And it appears that both of the dueling campaigns, both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign, are very clear on one thing. They don't want to be the pro-China candidate. In fact, they're both running as to be the man who will be tougher on China, and they want to prove that their opponent is weak. 
But it goes beyond that. As I record this, Senator Josh Howley of Missouri is giving a blistering speech on the Senate floor, ripping China. Here are some quotes from his speech, which was made public via Axios before he gave it. The international order that we have known for 30 years is breaking. Now, imperialist China seeks to remake the world in its own image and to bend the global economy to its will. Are we in this nation willing to witness the slow destruction of the free world? Are we willing to watch our way of life, our own liberties and livelihoods grow dependent on the policy of Beijing? Now we must recognize that the economic system designed by Western policymakers at the end of the Cold War does not serve our purposes in this new era. And Cold War might be something that you continue to hear more of going forward because we're seeing a lot of skirmishy proxy battle stuff happening post-COVID. Most notably, the World Health Organization, which has been blistered by the Trump administration and the president himself as being lackeys to China. We have put under advisement our funding of that organization because of their late response to the outbreak of COVID-19. And according to WHO critics, the fact that they are subservient to China And so it was at a World Health Organization summit this week that China offered to give them a lot more money and the United States said that they needed to reform more before they got any of ours. China, meanwhile, is now rebuking the United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo because he dared to congratulate the Taiwanese president on her second term. If you're not familiar, China considers Taiwan part of China. It is the one China policy where Taiwan respectfully disagrees. Any kind of international recognition for Taiwan, specifically public recognition, is something that China gets very, very angry about. So what does this mean politically? Well, for Donald Trump, China was supposed to be part of the promises made, promises kept portfolio. He complained a lot about China in 2016. He ran a trade war against them for the majority of his presidency. He signed a phase one deal that theoretically would demonstrate how poorly the United States had made deals in the past and how a firm hand with China could represent better economic fortune here in the United States. Unfortunately for the president, who likes to make deals by way of public glad-handing, he likes to give the carrot of public recognition to people that are across the table from him, like Kim Jong-un, like President Xi. There is now three years worth of positive comments from Trump to the Chinese government as he was trying to woo him in his very Trumpian way to make a deal. This will and indeed has been seized on by Joe Biden 
as you could see, every single one of those tweets is going to be run by the Biden campaign to show that you can't trust Trump. He's going to say he's going to be tough on China, and then he's going to roll over. He's just going to talk about how Xi's his best friend for another four years. Which you can only go so far if you're Biden, because it's not like the Obama administration wasn't friendly with China. Indeed, there are plenty of quotes from Joe Biden about what a tremendous partnership the Chinese can have with the Americans and Xi specifically. And that's before we get to the hunter of it all. Remember the do-nothing job and the board seat with the Ukrainian gas company? Yeah, there's another one of those in China. Like I said, Hunter's going to be a part of this election, whether or not you think it's smart or good. There's just too much Hunter, and it's too tabloid friendly for it to not be something that will be a part of all of this. Beyond that, if I'm the Biden campaign, I don't know how much I want to even push on China. Mostly because... As we begin to emerge from the time tunnel of the coronavirus into whatever this race is going to be, in my mind, I, I kind of think that the more we're talking about China, the more it benefits Trump because the less we're talking about the preparedness of the Trump administration. Yes, China is at fault for letting this break its borders, but I feel like Biden could benefit from saying, look, this was an act of God, but we had an act of God plan and you didn't put it in place, nor did you execute it. If I'm Joe Biden, the only thing I want to talk about when it comes to coronavirus is this is why you don't elect an amateur. This is why you elect professionals. Sure, it's nice if you want to shake things up. But does anybody really, really, really feel great about a pandemic response that's chaotic? Does anybody really, 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 really feel great about a president who's politically at war with a bunch of governors while all this is going on? No, you want a steady hand, a steady hand at the wheel. You may not love me, but this is the reason why I want to have it in the back of everybody's mind when they hit whatever button they hit on election day that this is why experience matters. Because you don't want another one of these. And if that's your argument, then China's not really a part of it. It's just a place where this thing popped up. If opposition to China goes mainstream, I have a hard time thinking that this is an advantage to anybody but Donald Trump. I am your host and ex-mistress, Love. This is Mistress for Congress, an audio memoir told week by week of my affair with a sitting congressman that began in 2009 and would span over a decade. This is my story. That is Love Jones, a nom de plume for Gabriella Linder, a political consultant and, as she reveals publicly, 
a mistress to sitting Nevada Congressman Stephen Horsford. Now, as listeners to this show know, I've researched a bunch of sex scandals. A few years ago, we had a March Madness bracket to crown the best. But what I saw here with this situation, I believe, is a first. A self-identified mistress laying out the step-by-step of the affair in a public podcast. The origin is something that will sound familiar if you've read enough of these stories. A married politician, in this case, then majority leader of the Nevada State Senate, meets a young staffer. In Linder's case, she worked for the most powerful politician in Nevada, Harry Reid. And they hit it off. And Linder gives some details. We went back to Bob's brother's apartment and continued to drink and talk. At some point in the evening, him and I ended up in the bedroom and had some of the roughest sex I had had to date. I figured he was just working out some of his life's frustrations, but I would come to know that this was just his style. He liked it rough. I grew to like it too. In fact, I loved it. I became addicted to it. The affair lasts for a year or so when Linder goes off to grad school out of state. She gets into another relationship and has a son, but eventually life leads her back to Vegas, and indeed back into another illicit relationship with Horsford. All of this is cataloged in the podcast, which spans about five minutes a pop for four episodes. But something happens between episodes two and three. At some point, the veil gets dropped. Linder had previously referred to Horsford as Bob on the episodes of the podcast, but on her Twitter account, she spills the beans and identifies Horsford with an at reply on the congressman's birthday. She then follows up on the next episode. There's been a development since last week's episode. On the Mistress for Congress Twitter page at M the number four C underscore 2020, We revealed Bob's identity in a tweet on Wednesday, April 29th, Bob's birthday. So everyone now knows that Bob in the story is Congressman Stephen Horsford from Nevada. So from now on in the podcast, I'll be addressing Bob by his real name. Gabriella, don't give that one to Twitter. They don't need the help. Tease it on Twitter. Keep the big reveal for your own podcast. Come on. That's how you get the listens. This, of course, brings press attention from the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and they're the first to not only identify, but speak to Linder. For the record, I reached out to the email address listed with the podcast to see if we could talk to Gabriella, and after a uh, fan interaction on her Twitter account, she said she would check out the podcast, so maybe she's listening now. Episode 4 is the final episode discussing Horford, and it features Linder's mom. But more notably, it features the most withering commentary that Linder gives about what Horsford should do now that the truth is known. I want to be clear that this isn't some revenge campaign to destroy Stephen. This is my truth, and I have every right to tell it. Did he cause me a lot of harm? Yes. Do I believe he needs to do some atoning? Absolutely. Do I believe he needs to step out of public office for some time to do that atoning? Yes. I've learned that no good comes from running from the truth. There's no time like the present. I've extended an invitation to the congressman to come on my show and start the restorative justice process, which starts with confronting the truth. 
I'll let you know how he responds. After the Review Journal article, Horsford admitted to the affair. And also, he's running for re-election this November. The revelations have kicked up calls for Horsford to answer questions about the affairs. There are some specific questions because Gabriella mentioned getting financial gifts from Horsford to see whether or not any of that money might have come from public or campaign resources. And these questions are not only coming from his likely Republican challengers in the fall, but also some of his Democratic challengers because their primary has yet to happen. In case you're keeping track of this kind of stuff, based on voter registration, Horsford would still have an advantage, presuming he makes it through the primary, which seems like he will. Linder says that this is not about revenge against her ex-lover, but rather an attempt to speak her truth. And I, for one, have no reason to not believe her on that. I would only add the caveat that as a new Mistress for Congress listener, I would say that an animating part of her truth is how betrayed and furious she is with Steve Horsford. And still, I would guess that there is probably a lot that she left out. Having read a lot of these kinds of affair situation cases, uh, there's normally some of this dirt that if she has unrestrained access to say whatever she wants, we didn't really get a lot of. She doesn't belabor a lot of details that Horsford fed her on how long they would have to wait in the shadows before he was able to embrace her publicly. Beyond saying that he enjoyed rough sex, we don't get a lot of other specific details on stuff like that, let alone embarrassing kinks or nicknames. Those often have a way of finding their way out in these stories. And we get absolutely no slander from Linder toward Horsford's wife or family dynamic, which unfortunately is usually a hallmark in situations like this. Unfortunately, this season of Linder's Mistress for Congress podcast has ended. Despite the fact that she promised a fifth episode, she now says that that will not see the light of day. And with the novelty and the mystery out in the open, it might be safe to assume that this is a story that fades into the background of another congressional race on election day. Unless, how does candidate Love Jones sound? As you have noticed, this show doesn't have an ad. Instead, we rely on you. We rely on the listeners of this program to go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We are on a mission, a mission to get to 1,000 patrons. 1,000 patrons, a big round number. And we are close. We are inching toward 900. We are at 892 as I record this. Can we go over 900 this week and begin the final century climb to 1K? Well, we'll find out. TakePoliticsSeriously.com has so many options for you. You got a little bit of cash. Obviously, these are cash-strapped times. The big tent 
gives you just an option to throw a buck an episode. Oh, so easy. If you're a big Mr. Moneybags, we got places for that as well. Check them out. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One of the other things that we like to do on this uh, program is give away some of the political memorabilia that's either been sent to us or has been uh, collected from the trail. We had a Kamala Harris sign from the Iowa State Fair last year, and uh, we're going to give it away right now. So, congratulations to Steven Schleicher of Major Spoilers Entertainment. You indeed are the winner of a Kamala Harris for President 2020 sign, political memorabilia in the making. Go ahead and uh, hit me with a good address, and I'll get it to you ASAP. Our guest today is Lisa Karanin, an associate professor and chair of the Department of Communications at the University of Colorado, Denver. Her latest book in progress is entitled Viral Apocalypse, Biosecurity, Rhetoric, and Resilience from Anthrax to COVID. She joins us to talk about the metaphors we use to describe illness both amongst each other and from places of power. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, the way that we communicate about illness is fascinating and something that seems to only get dusted off every so often. We are in a heavy dose of it right now. In in general, uh, how would you say uh, uh, historically we've talked about illness and is there any difference to how we're doing it now today in 2020? Sure. So I would say historically, there is a very long history of talking about illness in battlefield uh, metaphors, wartime metaphors, and you can see that across different cultures. You can also see that as a pretty enduring pattern over time. There are changes, though, over time, because one thing that we see is that the latest technology of the day often gets pulled into our metaphorical ways of talking about illness. And so an example that I can give you of that would be the way that computer metaphors and uh, virus imagery kind of collided during the 20th century so that we could talk about the encoding um, encoding of viral messages, for example. Huh. All right. Well, here, I really want to decode kind of where we are now with the idea that uh, a computer virus has now become our metaphor for understanding an actual virus. But uh, uh, let's let's go back. You, you mentioned that historically battlefield sure. metaphors are something that are, are used. Can you give us some some examples, some historical examples? Yeah, absolutely. So when Robert Koch was investigating tuberculosis in the late 1800s, for example, he and other bacteriologists used uh, wartime metaphors. And in fact, I wanted to kind of give you a couple of quotes from him. Um, So when he discovers um, the tuberculosis bacteria in 1882, he talked about how And this is his quote, in the battle against this terrible plague affecting humankind, we will know we will in the future no longer be dealing with an indefinite something, but a tangible parasite. And so there he starts with that battle uh, that humans are waging against tuberculosis and then likens it to a parasite towards the end. Huh. So the more we have a handle on it, the more it's tangible. It goes from being uh, 
the the uh, uh, invisible enemy, as as Donald Trump has said it, to something right. that now we can wrap our hands around. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And then there's another, there's one that I found from one of his 1890 speeches, which I just think is fascinating in terms of metaphor. And again, shows a history at least stretching to the late 1800s in Western discourse. But he said that even during times of peace, the military diseases are stalking the army and gnawing at its marrow. But when the torch of war is ablaze, they come crawling out of their hideouts, raise their heads to gigantic heights, and destroy everything in their way. And so here, where he's talking about bacteria, you know, he is really talking about it um, stalking the army, gnawing at its marrow, you know, almost that it's this enemy that is eating us, kind of like a dog or yeah. a beast. Oh. Um, so there's really, you know, vibrant and fascinating imagery coming out of some of these early descriptions of a bacteria. So, yeah, so that, yeah, it seems almost like like feral dogs or, or some, you know, a, a pride of lions or something that is that is chewing uh, uh, through through the, 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 the actual troops there. Right. Yes. And what's so interesting is when you think about all of the images that we have of viral zombies, you know, yeah. coming out of the post 9-11 anthrax era, that idea of consumption and of a virus leading to something that is gnawing at, that is eating, that is chewing off the face of the other, you know, that's very consistent in terms of our visual metaphors that we have for talking about contamination and contagion. Now, wh where where do you think that that comes from is, is there any origin to that to to that kind of personification uh of, of it being uh this, this this relentless i mean i guess i'm answering my own question if i say that it, it, it it's a relentless killer how else are you going to imagine it but something stalking you from the bushes Right. And even think about kind of, you know, early descriptions of plague um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And there's similar kind of imagery that is very bestial, um, sometimes insect driven and so on. So, again, I think you like you said, you're getting at this point that these are really enduring patterns for how humans have figured the language to talk about illness. Um, you can see it in ancient Chinese metaphors, for example. and um, there are some bioethicists who have done some investigation of Chinese traditional medicine and the metaphors that it used for illness. And even in the second century BCE, uh, Chinese medicine is talking about an invasion. I won't try to pronounce the Mandarin word for That's you. Fine. Smart, um, but smart. It, but it's been there. Um, so again, I think that shows you cross-culturally. And it also shows you over a very long period of time that there are these martial military metaphors um, in this time or actually at a later time, people were using in China, Chinese medicine, the idea of a physician being a general kind of fighting this battle against the illness. Um, so it is enduring. The only other thing that I could imagine it being described as or a big virus that is uh, you know, killing people would be like an act of God, like that there is some kind of uh, uh, thing from above that has now laid upon us a burden that we must overcome. Yes. Have we have we seen that or, or is there a, a point in which we transition from these things are out of our hand to we need to beat back the other, the the evil 
gnawing uh, 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 <laughs> big tooth other? So, yes. And so I would say in the West, we generally say that the Enlightenment represents a turning point away from descriptions of illness and disaster as being fated or destined uh, or, you know, destined because of some divine intervention. However, you do see those metaphors of fate and destiny still coming up in contemporary conversations about illness. So in some studies of uh, HIV AIDS metaphors in China, for example, this idea of it being fated has has come up in the discourse. Now, we don't see the idea of HIV being fated in the West as, as much. Um, maybe a person might use that in one-off sort of situations. But it is interesting that that is one way that it's been configured in Chinese discourse. Huh. I, I also wonder how much that kind of rhetoric change aligns with where the politics of the leaders are, right? I guess you don't really want an act of God to be actively eroding the plan that you've put in place. Uh, you want an, an evil monster that must be defeated to be doing that. Yes, particularly so. And politically, it is very useful for leaders, not saying that it's the most ethical response, but it's useful for leaders to uh, pin the virus on this other sort of enemy. And so here with regard to COVID-19, you know, what we're seeing is both the use of martial metaphors by Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, by uh, Xi Jinping mm -hmm. in China, who called for a people's war against COVID-19. Um, but then that war against the invisible enemy is also something that can be put on another nation state. And so in the U.S. then, what we're seeing is quite a bit of demonization, scapegoating, and placing of responsibility for COVID-19 onto China, which, again, is politically useful for an administration that does want to whip up anti-China sentiment. Yeah. And and it's funny that you've mentioned that as soon as that if there is a tipping point between the virus being you know spreading out of control versus having some measure of understanding where it is and how to deal with it, 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 it is it tracks fairly closely to when the president went from calling it a invisible enemy to mentioning, oh, OK, we need to stamp out the embers. Right. The embers of the fire yes. was a metaphor that he went to a lot of, over the last few weeks. And, and now it makes sense because you're like, OK, I can visualize what an ember is. An ember can be dangerous. You need to stamp it out. But it's physical. It's not this, you know, uh, 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 amorphous poison air. Right. And I think the fire metaphor is particularly interesting because it locates the virus in particular uh, flame areas, um, hot, hot zones. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's a place where the metaphor of illness and fire kind of overlap. And under that logic, it can be contained and it helps to account for um, letting different bodies into different spaces at different times because they're not, quote unquote, on fire. So, yes, um, I expect that as there are arguments that COVID-19 is the quote unquote new normal, that we might resort less and less to the war metaphor and more and more to this kind of fire containment embers. It's burning here in this location, but not there. So the rest of the country can be open and so on and so forth. 
So you mentioned that the concept of computer viruses, which was a metaphor adopted from real viruses, is now being recycled into the idea of how we understand actual viruses. Uh, where have we seen that? Yeah, so there's often a lot of traffic between the science of virology or bacteriology, depending on the, the time, and um, and technology, as I mentioned. And so, you know, when we started talking in the late 20th century about computer viruses, we were drawing from the language of illness to talk about spread of something through cyberspace. And then we also configure computer viruses in terms of illness metaphors with the invasions and the spread and efforts to contain and stamp out um, this unwanted spread of vicious or malicious code, for example. So there's quite a bit of traffic between technologies of the day and our viral imagery to begin with, and then with computer language itself of encoding and decoding, that became, and here I'm referring to another metaphor, a blueprint in some ways for how we began to talk about genes and even immunology. So then you see more um, computer references coming into with encoding and decoding. Oh, wow. So that really was the bridge. So, so that gave- There is a blink, yes. Huh. Look at that. Uh, uh, all right. So let me ask you this for, for people that are, are obviously, you know, uh, uh, trying to make sense of everything that's going on. We have metaphors for the out of control spread when things have kind of uh, uh, gotten under control. Are there general languages or metaphors that are used for moments of recovery or uh, uh, trying to memorialize a obviously tragic moment through illness. Yes. So we have all sorts of other metaphoric systems that we could refer to that might get us on this path towards a healing or a recovery. Um, so a journey metaphor is a really common metaphor for talking about illness, particularly individual illness. And, yeah. you know, I'm on journey and I eventually I'm on the quote road to recovery. So that's Which that was that was I think uh, the the LA County health official who wound up getting herself in a little hot uh, hot water for mentioning that there might be a lockdown until August uh, walked back literally with that metaphor saying that our our uh, illness or our recovery journey I want to get her name or words right mm -hmm. our recovery journey will be reflected in how things open up. So that, that literally already has, has been yes. used in a high profile example. Yes. Yes. And politically, we've seen that a lot. I mean, even Rudy Giuliani back in the day was talking about the road to resilience, you know, as a kind of post 9-11 recovery model. Um, so along with that, we also see metaphors of weather. So and it was really funny. My two year old or three year old niece just the other day said, Mommy, I feel a cold front coming on. And she was mixing up her metaphors, right? Yeah. But but there was something really creative in that use of language, like that my illness is like a weather storm that is coming through my body. And so weathering the storm is another metaphor that can be used where we're in it, the winds are howling around us, there is, you know, all of this, this strife. And then at some point, we're going to come out of it on the other side, and there will be rainbows and sunshine. Uh, so weather metaphors are ones that can be used. 
A lot of people have proposed um, metaphors where we're climbing a mountain, like we're climbing Mount Everest. And when we are able to uh, contain COVID, you know, we've reached the summit or the peak, and then we can reflect back over this. Again, it pulls in, it's it's kind of a subset of that journey metaphor. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that would be another one. Um, I've increasingly been thinking of COVID, like this morning I took my puppy for a walk and I was thinking about how, you know, we could look at COVID as being something like a cocoon to butterfly sort of transformation where, you know, and, and this might be a little silly, but I like to garden. I was walking the puppy. I was looking at nature <laughs> sort of, you know, that that our society had become rampant with consumption like a caterpillar. Right. So we're just like voraciously consuming, you know, energy and materials and bodies and so on. And then we need a time of rest and reflection. And that if done right, COVID can give us almost cocoon time where we're looking inward, we are taking a break, we're resting, we're rethinking, and hopefully on the other side of that, if we're smart, we will emerge as something that is stronger and more beautiful. So that was just one one way that I was thinking about how we could reconfigure the idea of kind of lockdown, you know, and some people are saying, I feel imprisoned in my own house and my rights are being taken away and so on and so forth. And so what if we thought instead of it as being this, this punitive lockdown, but as this opportunity for rest and reflection? I'll tell you what, I like it. I like it. I liked it, it, but I I like to garden. So all of those kind of cultivation, (laughs) natural metaphors um, kind of resonate with me personally. Well, and and in looking at the difference of the phases, right, the invisible enemy or a war metaphor or being attacked by something that is natural or unnatural, uh, these are things that you can't control. Right. These are that that is preparing you for this could get worse. We don't know. The best thing we can do is protect ourselves and and hope that the attacks subside. The second right. the second part is, OK, we know what this is. So let's give you a physical metaphor that lets you understand that this is something that can be controlled because you have controlled it throughout your life. And in these metaphors that we're giving now, a road. We have walked a road. We know it's long. But if you're told you're on a journey or you're on a road, but you're already three-fourths of the way there, you're happy, right? That's that's when you're happy on a journey, when you're on a long road yes. trip and you finally come into your home state. Sure, you might have a couple hours to go, but you, you know these roads. You're very excited to be there. Or even in your uh, chrysalis example, uh, uh, that is not a cool thing to say to somebody probably at the very beginning, but if we're right. about to break out in as a beautiful butterfly, oh, okay, well, maybe all these lessons were here for a reason. Right, and there might be something a bit of Pollyanna in that, but for, from my perspective of thinking something better can come out of this, but I think that it could if our habits of thinking and acting were more reflective as a society. So my fear is that we won't. 
Um, but I think that it is this opportunity for us to rethink um, the health of our democracy. And, you know, you were talking earlier in the interview about the way we talk about illness. Well, we yeah. also talk about democracy in terms of health metaphors and governance. You know, we talk about the body politic. We talk about the health of our state. We talk about heads of state and so on. And so mm. the imagistic systems for illness and democracy are also intertwined. And, you know, one one opportunity that I think that COVID gives us is to reflect on the health of our democracy and to look at what of the what some of the potential harms and risks are and what some of the ways that perhaps as a society and as a mode of governance, we've gotten maybe out of control or off track. And again, I'm back to a, a road metaphor there. Yeah. But I think there, that, that COVID does present us with this opportunity to rethink some of our ways of governance and some of our habits of thinking and action in ways that could be better for everybody involved. And I'm not going to say what those are, because I think that, that that should be the result of a national conversation that includes all, all the voices um, of stakeholders. But again, that would be one of my central points is that COVID is really an opportunity for reflection, reflection and uh, potentially uh, a, a better path for the future. Yeah, you know, that is one element that I've uh, uh, referred to on the show before, which is that this COVID situation has given us, to go back to a health metaphor, in the same way that you can best understand an organ or a system, a health, uh, you know, a body system by it stopping working so you can understand how it worked, we are now looking at presidential campaigns, businesses, uh, uh, schools, parental relationships with their kids. All of that now is is uh, 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 in suspended animation or accelerated in the in, in the, the the kid and parent uh, situation. But like we can now understand it like, like you can look at it and say, OK, well, uh, when everything starts coming back online, which of these businesses are going to be out of business and why? Like we, we can now understand that on the level uh, uh, economically and in terms of our presidential campaigns. What happens when you take away the ability to go on the road, when you take away the ability to have a crowd? What is a campaign on its fundamental level? That's a, a fascinating thing that I think is metaphorically very similar to our kind of natural systems. Yes. And it takes this classic metaphor of the body as machine and applies it to the state. Right. So that yeah. all of these different pieces, transportation, uh, business, the health system, et cetera, are kind of the parts um, of the political body. And then we have to ask, OK, what are the remedies? You know, which of these parts, like you said, which of these parts do we need and what can we amputate to extend your metaphor? What can we transform? You know, and how do we remedy this? again, putting quotes around it, illness that we're seeing in our body politic. Oh man, that is, that is, that is fascinating. Uh, um, I, I, uh, I, I really, uh, <laughs> I'm really excited that you came on because, uh, as, as much as I think there is a, uh, a confusion in where we are right now, I, I do think that language kind of matters more than it has in the past, if even just because there's less going on. And so people take things 
in a different way. They understand them in a different way. They process them in, in a different way. And I guess now that I'm talking about it, that's probably why we study this kind of language in these kinds of situations as uh, closely as we do. Yes. And for me, as a scholar who studies the language of health and medicine, I think you know, for me, I'm going to say it always matters, but COVID is really bringing it into high relief that our language choices matter because they structure how we see the world and they allow certain possibilities to seem um, inevitable versus, you know, containing them or foreclosing that it's even a possibility. And so, you know, it's inescapable that we're going to use metaphor and figurative language. It is just part and parcel of human thought. And, and that's a very, um, that's a very insightful finding from, um, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson in metaphors we live by, but it means that, you know, we need to think very carefully about our language choices and how we're configuring where we're going as a society. And for me, COVID has just brought that into such sharp relief that there are life and death consequences, literally, to how we talk about and understand a virus. Same is true for our democracy. It's just that we haven't lately been pulling it apart quite so much. And perhaps, you know, we've been looking so much at the president's tweets that we haven't taken a step back and said, all right, but what are the underlying assumptions of our democracy? You know, how yeah. are we configuring that? And what are the values right now that seem to be driving our democracy? And are those the values that make our democracy the best for everybody? And I do think that there's also a a telling element that you can understand where certain politicians, certain sides of the aisle and, 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 and the commentariat class, uh, where they understand our situation based on the way that the metaphors that they are using and the way that they are processing it. You can you can see uh, uh, into somebody's emotional state as to how tangible they believe this virus is, which is fascinating. Absolutely. Yes. And you see that, you know, with with some of the comments about perhaps injecting with disinfectant or bleach or something or shine, shining some sunlight in. I do think that statements like that are a window into individual understanding of of an illness condition. Yeah. Yeah. Something that, that <laughs> I guess, taking a metaphor very literally. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, all right. Well, this this is uh, uh, has been a fantastic conversation. Of course, I've spoken with Lisa Karanen. She is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado, Denver. Her latest book in progress is entitled Viral Apocalypse, Biosecurity, Rhetoric and Resilience from Anthrax to COVID. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this, Lisa, on the way out. Viral apocalypse seems like a very specific uh, uh, metaphor to, to title a book by. Yes, it is. And it kind of all starts in the post 9-11 era when um, anthrax was mailed through the U.S. Postal Service. And at the time, there were a lot of visions that um, a bioterrorist would bring about the end of civilization as we know it through an anthrax spore or some smallpox. And that imagery we see in shows like The Walking Dead, um, films like 28 Days Later, we see it in political discourse all over the place. And then when COVID happens, it's arguably 
a viral apocalypse in many ways, the end of life as we know it, many yeah. people have said, and yet it looks a lot different than what all of our imagery prior to that had suggested it would be. And so that's exactly what I plan to look at in this project. Well, I am excited to read it. Uh, Lisa, thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And that'll about wrap it up for us today. I want to thank everybody who supports us on TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including our Titanic $10 tier. Middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas, Danger, Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, D-Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen, Summers, Brian, Emily, Wolf Glenn 99, Berkeley Steven, The Gen, NH Blumkin, Robert Eoxy, DL, Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, Jay Millius, Jonathan Scott, Lindsay, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic Terror, and Olin and Angela, Richard, Thor, and The Lonely Now. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. By the way, if you want to get my thoughts on politics five days a week in your email, you can do so at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. And I always say that we have the best readers in the business for that. I'm not kidding. The emails I get back, the the, the comment section, basically, I, I will I will have the uh, put publish the best feedback that I get each and every day. It often has a mind of its own. We have now transitioned from nonstop ska discussion to just cyber bullying Andrew Heaton into running for president. If that seems like something that you'd be interested in, then head on over. FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. Sign up. It's free. Five days a week. Five stories a day. Very quick read. And I guarantee you, you're not going to have more fun reading about politics uh, in any anywhere at all. Period. Bar none. We're done with that conversation. Again, Justin R. Young on Twitter. Justin R. Young on Instagram. Join our Discord at bit.ly slash jury discord. J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Talk politics with other PX3 listeners 24-7. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying politics has three names. But more importantly, I know a show that talks about politics. I saw another one that talked about politics, and there was somebody on TikTok talking about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares to talk about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>